Thanks for checking out the Christian Life Austin podcast. If this is your first time listening, make sure to check us out at clcaustin.com for more info on how you can connect with us. We trust that you will enjoy today's message. Thank you for listening. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, I'll just warn you up front, it's a little bit gross, uh, the story. So I hope you ate dinner before you came to church. But it's in the Bible, and it's a true story, and I'm going to read the whole thing to you. And it takes place in about 850 B.C., now, this is about the nation of Israel. Most of the New Testament is written about the nation of Israel. And at one point in the Old Testament, they divided the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. So you have the northern kingdom, which was Israel. And you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, or sometimes they would refer to it as Judea. And in the northern kingdom, they had a lot of bad kings, just wicked men that abandoned God's law, abandoned God's covenant. They worshipped false idols. And this story takes place during the reign of one of those wicked kings, a king by the name of Jehoram. Now, Jehoram was such a bad king that God told Elisha, the prophet, he says, I want you to go tell Jehoram that I'm going to bring judgment to him and I'm going to bring judgment to his kingdom because of his wicked ways. And so Elisha goes and he tells Jehoram this news and Jehoram says, I don't believe you. That's not going to happen. But it did happen. And the Arameans, who were the enemies of the Israelites, surrounded the capital city of Samaria. And they didn't go in and attack the city. They besieged the city. Which means they didn't allow anything to go in and nothing to come out. Well, if you have several months of this where nothing is going into a city and nothing is going out of a city, after several months you're going to run out of... You got it. You're going to run out of food. And so that's what's happening. And so that's where the story takes kind of a gross turn is because there's all these laws in God's, in the Old Testament, which they studied and they lived by that said, you can't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. But they abandoned that long ago and they're eating anything that moves. So they're eating donkey heads. Donkey heads were selling at a premium. They were selling dove dung. Yeah, I told you it's gross. Dove dung. They're eating that. Uh, They're resulting to cannibalism. Just anything that, that was moving, again, they, they considered that their next meal. So it's really, really bad. Now, that's taking place inside the city walls. Now, just outside the city walls is where our story picks up. And there's four men outside the city walls, and they all have leprosy. Now, if you don't know what that is, leprosy is a highly communicable skin disease that still exists today, but it's not as prevalent. But when you got leprosy 2,000 years ago, uh, well, 2,800 years ago, it was bad news because... You were uh, taken out, it was so, you could contract it, so it was highly communicable. So they would basically shun you from their city. They wouldn't let you allow, to, allow you to live inside the city walls. So you would lose your home, you would lose your business, you would lose your family, you would lose your friends. And because it was a skin disease, you would often lose your skin. You might even lose the ends of your fingers or your toes or the end of your nose. You might lose limbs. It was a very, very dangerous disease. And so these four men are outside the city walls. And you can imagine if inside the city walls they're eating dove dung, come on. <laughs> then how bad were the conditions for the men outside the city walls when the ones that are inside that are healthy are resulting to that kind of food? So that's where we pick up our story. It was an every man for himself kind of society in Samaria. And uh, these four men, they get together and they realize they have three options. That's it. They have three options. And so they go over the three options. They're not very good options, but we're going to pick up the story in 2 Kings 7, beginning in verse 3. It'll be on the screen for you. 
It says, now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans, our enemy, and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. (laughs) Other great options, aren't they? All right, okay. All right, huddle up, huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. All right, we got to come up with a plan. All right, we can stay here. We don't have any food, so we're going to die. We can go in there. They don't have any food, so we're going to die. Or we can go to our enemy, and we can surrender. Can you imagine, like, this pitiful surrender? Hey, we give up. You know, they don't have, like, all their fingers. And they're like, hey, you know, we give up. We're waving the white flag. And just just the jokes that would ensue among the Aramean camp going, oh, really? They're giving up, are they? You know, if they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, we die. Like, like, we have really bad options at this point. But that's the best of the bad options. So keep going. Verse 5. This is such a cool story. How many have heard this story before? Okay, a couple of you. It's just a great story. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. I love that. So God's plan was, you know what? I don't like what Jehoram's doing. The wickedness that's ensuing in Samaria and in Israel as a whole. I don't want to destroy Samaria, though. I just want to shake things up a bit. So after he had decided they'd been severely shooken up, he says, okay, enough's enough. And so God sends a noise or a wind or something that that hits the Arameans' ears, and they mistake it for an army that's ambushing them. They're thinking, oh, 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 the Israelites have got allies, either the Egyptians or the Hittites, and they're fixing to ambush us and take us. That's what we're hearing. We're hearing the sound of chariots and horses, and they're coming for us. Let's get out of here. So they leave everything. I mean, they leave everything. And they're just in headlong flight at sunset, and they're leaving stuff as they go along on the trail. So you can imagine, here come these, these four lepers who are just hungry, and they get there. Yeah. And they go, okay, okay, okay. There's some horses and there's some donkeys and there's some sheep and there's some goats and there's some food and the fire's still lit. And P-A-R-T, why? Because we got to right? So they're having a fun time and they're eating food. Well, let's just read the story. Let me just read the story. Okay. It's so exciting. So verse 8, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. They took the silver, gold, and clothes. Clothes were very expensive because they were all handmade. And uh, went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. So I don't know how long this went on, but like, it's just this pattern, this cyclical pattern where they would eat some and they would drink some and they would take some of the treasures and they would go bury it. And they would go into another tent and they would eat some and they would drink some and they'd find some treasures and they would go bury it. And they're just having a wonderful time. The scripture doesn't talk about this, but I think it was at this point in the Bible that they reformed the four-man leprosy band. They had that hit song, Footloose. <laughs> Everybody got loose, foot loose. These are lepers. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So these four men, 
banished from their city. They come in and they're having a party, right? It's an awesome time. They're having a really, really good time. Everything's going well. And they're going, through, they're going berserk all night long. And then they, they, they hit a point where they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is good, guys. But we got all that family back in Samaria. Yeah, yeah, they didn't treat us real well when we got this disease. But at the end of the day, they're still family. And they're still our friends. I think we should do something. And then we get to the most amazing verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, but specifically in the Old Testament. Look at verse 9. The beginning of verse 9. Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. So lepers are going, what are we doing? This is a day of good news. We got to go back. We got to go back and tell them because they're still in there eating dub dung. I'm going to see how many times I can say that in the podcast. Uh, they're going, we got to go back and we got to tell them because they're dying. Those are our family and our friends. We've got to go back. We got to tell them the good news. We're saved. They're saved. The Arameans are gone. It's really encouraging. What we're doing is not right. They had this conviction. I know like this is good, but it's not right. This is a day of good news and we have to go back. And we have to tell them we're keeping this to ourselves. And what's funny is, is as you're reading this story, you're thinking that before they even said that, aren't you? You're going, yeah, this, this happily ever after, this can't end unless they go back and they tell all those people who they left behind. All the Israelites who are starving, they need to go back and tell them. I mean, we're even thinking that before they said that. So let's keep going through the end of the story. Uh, finish verse 9. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. I said, we're off. Let's go tell the palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and no one was there. Not a sound of anyone. Only tethered horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving. So they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. So he thinks it's a trap. He thinks it's a trick. Because not so fast. They're hiding. They're waiting for us. I'm not going out there and then getting ambushed ourselves. I don't buy it. And then one of the officers answered, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like, a, like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what happens. So he has an idea. He goes, look, we're all going to die, bub. So why don't we send out some of the horses, some of the men, and if they get ambushed and killed, well, their doom is our doom, right? We're all going to die. But maybe there is some truth to that. Let's just check out this claim. Verse 14, so they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. Army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in the headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered. Everybody say plundered. Plundered. Yeah, say it like, because like, like, you think about it. They've been hung, they're hungry, right? So they went out and plundered yeah they plundered that camp right they plundered that camp i've lost my place 
Oh, we're at 16. I was looking at 15. The camp of the Arameans. So a sea of the finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. Because Elisha the prophet had prophesied that by this time tomorrow, prices are coming down because there's going to be food for everybody. Isn't that a great story? I love that story. You see the parallel, though? The parallel is almost so obvious that it doesn't need to be stated. But I'm going to state it anyway. You look down and it's so obvious what, what these men should do. They have come upon salvation. I mean, it's salvation. They were going to die. And they are now saved. They found food and they found drink and they found treasure. They're saved. And we're looking at this story and we're going, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you should do. And I have to wonder if all of heaven is looking down on us and saying, yeah, it's so obvious to us what you should do. I don't know if you remember, but there was a time in your life where you came to God or you came back to God and you had this this hunger, not the same hunger they experienced, but a spiritual hunger or a spiritual thirst. And and you wanted God and and you were at a point in your life where you you just didn't even know up from down. You, You were maybe you had a mask on the outside that everything's cool. But on the inside, it was chaos. Or maybe the outside was chaos and it just heightened your sense of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. And, and, and you didn't really, you just knew you couldn't keep going on the current trajectory. You knew it was headed towards a bad direction. You knew you had to change something because you couldn't keep going on at the rate you were going on. It's not going to resolve itself. This hunger, this thirst, this emptiness, this void, it wasn't going away. So you, you did that unusual thing. You went into the unknown. You allowed your desperation to supersede your sense of embarrassment. You allowed your desperation to supersede your outpace your pride. And you decided to give this Jesus thing a chance. So you, you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crack open this Bible. I'm going to read it for the first time ever. Or I'm going to say yes to that friend who keeps driving me crazy, asking me to go to CLC. Come sit with me. Come sit with me. Okay, I'll come sit with you. And I went to church. And something happened. Man, God got a hold of me and I realized that he was a father who wanted to have a relationship with me. And Jesus Christ wanted to come into my life and wanted to save me and set me free from my sins. And give me abundant life on this earth and eternal life in heaven. And I realized that I have a father who loves me and who cares for me. And I have a Jesus who who loves me and who died for me. When your eyes were open and, and, and you start looking at this book and the words kept le- leaping off the page. You're like, oh, this is so good. Oh, this is so good. This is living and it's active and it's, it's almost like it's the breath of God in my life. And you see this stuff happening and everything began to change for you. The way you viewed your family began to change and the way you viewed your friendships and your relationships and your business and your morality. Everything began to change, not immediately, but slowly over time. And you started noticing, I'm a different person. My life is different. And even your discretionary time was taken up differently. And you're, you're doing things like, I'm, I'm, I'm serving at the church. I'm in the parking lot, helping people get in their parking lot. And I, I'm going to help out with the trunk or treat. I'm going to set up a trunk or treat. And I got the live group. I'm in a live group. I'm going to church on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights and Sunday mornings. And I'm just, anytime the doors are open, if they're vacuuming, I'll watch them. I'll sit down and watch them. I love going to church and I'm going to Christian movies with my Christian friends. And I'm having a great time but if we're not careful we can be just like those lepers and we're basking in the treasure of God and all the hunger and that he's filled with the bread of life and the living water we're filling up with that and we're like oh this is so good I'm just basking in you and we have forgotten the people and the places that we've left behind that need to know about this good news that we have discovered that we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior And I'm guilty of it too. And it's not that we're not compassionate. It's not that we're not, 
we don't have a desire to help them. We even say things like, well, yeah, I, sh- I should. I ought to. But we don't. We just wrap up in the treasure around us. And like those lepers, we might not be doing the right thing. With this great discovery for them comes a greater responsibility. The great responsibility. In fact, the fact they knew how it could be and should be meant they were responsible for those that had not yet discovered it. Let's look at that verse 9 one more time. They said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. And we're keeping it to ourselves. Friends, we have good news. And if we're keeping it to ourselves, it's not right. There are people in your circles of influence that you do life with, that you work with, that you live beside, that you see at the, as a barista serves you coffee, that you frequent restaurants and you see the same waiter, you ask for the same waiter, and they do not know Jesus. They don't have the good news of him dying on the cross for their sins. And I hate to say this and I hate to be blunt, but they're destined for hell. That's what I believe because that's what the Bible teaches They're destined for wrath. And we have this good news that we can share with them and say, hey, let me tell you something. I had an incredible discovery, and I can't go another day without sharing this with you. The first thing, let me say this, the first thing that Jesus said to his disciples, the very first thing, remember, they're on the boat, and he's calling them to be his disciples. And he goes, hey, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. That's weird. Can you imagine? They're just fishing. Hey, we're going to go fish for people. I mean, like, catch them and string them up and fillet them. What do you want? <laughs> we're going to go fish for people. He says, listen, the goal, like, the calling is I want you to go tell other people about, about me, about the kingdom, about God. And then the very last thing, remember the last thing that he says to his disciples? It's recorded in Matthew 28. He says, therefore, go and Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them. Teach them to obey everything I've taught you. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I'm going to be with you. Surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. He says, I want you to go and I want you to tell other people. Acts 1.8 would say it a little differently. He says, you will be my witnesses. What's a witness? Well, I've never been to a trial, but I imagine that a witness. Brother Dale could tell us. I imagine a, a, a witness is somebody who has experienced something. They've seen something, they've heard something, and they can testify, hey, I can testify, I know about this case. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You've experienced something in me. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were standing, in all Judea and Samaria, which is the surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth. So the first thing and the last thing that he told his disciples was the same thing. I think this is pretty high on Jesus' agenda, don't you think? He goes, I want you to spread the good news to the far ends of the earth. And you don't have to do it on your own. I'm going to give you the power of my spirit to do it. But I started thinking about it. And I think about like Revelation 4 and 5. It's one of my favorite texts. And John gets to see the throne room of God. And he sees God on his throne. And then the 24 elders, they start laying their crowns before the feet of Jesus. And it talks about that all the believers from every tribe, from every people group, from every language, from every tongue, they're all gathered Millions of believers. 
And I think about that moment and we're going to lay down our crowns. We're going to lay down what we have to offer at Jesus' feet in that moment. It's going to happen. And I think about that moment and I'm just kind of practical and I start thinking about why, how would they do that? Like, practically. Like, if we were going to get millions, millions of people in one building, how? I just wonder how that's going to happen. So I start thinking, okay, well, if it was going to happen on earth, then it would be like a stadium. Like Daryl K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium, but bigger. All right, so you got millions and millions of people, but then I start going, well, how would we, where would we sit? Is it kind of first come, first serve? That's not cool, because I'll be in the nose, please, because I'm just not going to get there that fast. So how, how do we, I bet, I bet there's, no, God's too, or, he's a God of order, so there's going to be some sort of order. It's not going to be chaos. So he will probably, he'll probably, maybe it's alphabetical. Maybe we're off, no, it can't be alphabetical. Because Arabic believers, they have a different al- alphabet, and, and Russian believers, they have the Cyrillic alphabet, so it can't be alphabetical. So maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's by era. That makes sense. Yeah, maybe my era. So you have like the, the Old Testament Christians, and then you have first century, second century, third century, fourth century, all the way around the stadium to the 21st century Christians. Come on. There we are. We're in the stadium. The King of Kings is in the middle. He's on the 50-yard line. Woo! And we're all celebrating that moment. And then I thought, well, that's still pretty vague. 21st century believers. So how are they going to organize us in the, in, in the, maybe it's by, maybe it's by geography, maybe it's by nationality. And I thought, well, maybe we'll have all the American Christians in the 21st century. We'll be in the skybox, obviously, because we're Christians in the 21st century in America. But we'll, we'll, we'll be there. And then I thought, well, that's still pretty vague. And maybe he would do it. Maybe he would organize us as, as expressions of the bride of Christ. That makes sense to me, the different expressions of the bride of Christ. So maybe Christian life, Austin, would be seated together in that moment, praising our king. We'll be the loudest section, by the way. Come on. It's good practice. It's good practice. And so I just think about how cool that we were all like high-fiving. We made it. It's so cool. It's so cool. There he is. And we're going crazy. And then we're going around, and I just think about that moment, and we look around the stadium, and there's the, there's the Hebrews 11 Christians, these men and women of faith. Men like Noah, who Genesis 2 says it never rained. And God says, build the boat, because it's going to rain a whole lot. I mean, that's crazy. And Noah's like, what's rain? And he just starts building this boat, and just his act of faith in Hebrews 11 saves his family, saves mankind. And then I think about Abraham and how he didn't have a child, his own child, by his wife Sarah for, for 100 years. And then he finally, she gives birth to this beautiful baby boy, Isaac. And it wasn't very long that he has this baby boy and he grows into this young boy. And God says, I want you to sacrifice him for me. And he doesn't have to do it. God stops him before he does it. He just wants to test him. How much do you love me? Do you love me more than this son you waited a hundred years to receive? And so Isaac's ready to slay him. And God says, no, 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 you've, you've passed the test. Yes, yes. I, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Not with my kids. I question that. Like, do I have that kind of faith? And then I look at Moses and how he led all the Israelites out of Egypt and how he had to stand up to the most powerful man in the world. He had a speech impediment and he had to talk to Pharaoh and he led them towards the promised land. And Joshua in Hebrews 11, he gets them into the promised land and how he does that. It's so bizarre. He, he, there's this first city, the first city they're going to conquer in the promised land is Jericho. And God says, I want you to walk around every day. For six days, and on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city seven times and then make a bunch of noise, and the walls are going to come down. That's weird, right? <laughs> that takes great faith. They're like, well, we're going to go in, and we're going to fight, and we're going to conquer, and we're going to slay them with swords. Now we're going to walk around the city and make some noise. 
You know, it just it takes great faith. You know, they're just walking around like, I don't know, that's what God said to do. We're just going to walk around the city and we'll see what happens. And the walls come down. They're like, <laughs> right? They're going crazy. And then I look at Rahab, who's hiding spy. I mean, just all these women and men of faith at Hebrews 11. Then we go to the first century Christians. In the first century Christians, Hebrews tells us that many of them, their homes were confiscated because of their faith. They lost their home and consequently lost their businesses. They lost their families because of the faith that we follow. Then we go to the second century Christians, and and that was when Roman persecution was really heavy. There was an emperor named Nero who was a a nasty guy, and he would take Christians and he would put them on the ends of stakes, and he would light them on fire as torches in his personal garden. And he would feed Christians to lions for his entertainment. Then we get to the 3rd and 4th century and, and the Roman Empire began to crumble. But that's when Europe began to expand and, and many, of women, many women and children were forced into slavery at that time. But instead of being angry at their captors, they showed love and compassion and kindness to their captors. So when the missionaries came in, the grassroots of evangelism had already been planted by these women and children who had been captured. And we keep going around and we keep going around. We get to the 1700s, the 1800s. There was a group called the Moravians. Look them up. They're incredible. And the Moravian people, they would... This is when, when Europe was really starting to explore the world. That's when the United States of America was founded, at least by Columbus. And, and so they're sending out ships left and right, trying to explore what is the earth. And these people called the Moravians, they were so passionate. And they were missionaries. And they would say, we're going to send you out. And they would send their 21, 22, 23-year-old young children, young adults. They would send them out and say, listen, you've got to go tell them about Jesus Christ. We don't know who you're going to come into contact with. You don't, we don't know what, what worlds you're going to. But you're going to run into some people, potentially. And you have to tell them about Jesus. And here's the scary thing. Sea travel back then was very dangerous because of tropical uh, diseases and things. And they had an 80% rate of not returning. 20% of the time they would see their kids again. And 80% of the time they would ship them off and say, you're gone. But this is so important. And here's what they would do. The Moravian people would pack the belongings of their 21, 22, 23-year-old children in coffins. Because there weren't... There weren't proper burials at sea. There was no way to properly bury your kid at sea. So they would say, listen, baby, I love you. You know that I love you. And I'm putting your stuff in a coffin. So if something happens and the 80% happens and you don't come back to us, I want you to have proper burial at sea. So I'm going to pack all of your belongings in this coffin. But it's so important that you go tell other people about Jesus Christ. Whoever you come into contact with, they have to know about our King, about our Savior. And they would willingly shift their kids off and say, go, tell Even today, even today, the voice of the martyr says 176,000 roughly people are martyred for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In places like Indonesia and northern India and parts of China and Somalia and Sudan, when you hear about on CNN, you hear about these political uprisings in nature and people are dying, it's usually because of their faith. And we go all the way around the stadium and they get to us. And there we are, the 21st century Christians from Austin, Texas. And I feel like in that very moment, we're going to feel very, 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 very Embarrassed. Because what have I done to advance the kingdom of God? Well, I saw somebody pull into the parking lot I didn't recognize, so I let them have the closer spot. Honestly, what are we going to say in that moment? We're going around, we're seeing these men and women, these heroes of faith. Listen, I'm not trying to beat you up, but we have more resources and more liberty 
and more theological training and more access to stuff online than anybody in the history of humanity. And you could argue we have done the least for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Not just, not us, I'm talking about big C, church us. And I don't want in that moment for you to turn around to me or Pastor Rex or Pastor Brad or Pastor Brandon or Pastor Randy and say, you knew this was going to happen and you didn't give us that desire. You didn't tell us. We could have brought more people. They could have been, this could have been a bigger section. I want to be radically dedicated to the mission. I would love to see the people of Christian life when it comes time to offer something to Christ. To all go down collectively and lay at the feet of Jesus. You know what, Jesus? We couldn't turn Austin. We couldn't do it. But what we did do is we made sure everybody that we knew, everybody in our circles, from our bosses to our employees, to other people that we work with, that we work beside, to the people that we go to lunch with, we, we, go to, we frequent the same places for lunch. And we see some of the same faces in some of those same places. Our baristas, our neighbors, we made sure everybody had opportunities, multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think, I think that would be a worthy offering to place at Jesus' feet. Say, listen, you do the saving. You didn't ask us to save. That's not our responsibility. Jesus Christ came to the world to save, 1 Timothy 1.15. We are called to go and tell, to go and make disciples, to be his witnesses. That's what our job is. So that's what I want to lay at his feet, Jesus. I give you that. That is my offering, is I did my part. Listen, we're losing our own country. You know that, don't you? You don't have to watch CNN or a debate to figure out that our country is in trouble. We are losing our own country, and it's happening under our watch. And I'm going to stand before Jesus and say, well, what did you do to change that trajectory? I want to have an answer. I believe the greatest advancement in the kingdom of God in this city is going to happen with someone who woke up this morning with a hangover in bed with someone who's not their spouse. Because you're going to lead that person to Jesus Christ. And guess who that person, guess who that person, guess who that person is friends with? Other people that are far from God. And guess who they're friends with? Other people that are far from God. And then guess what? We're growing the kingdom of God, not by addition, but by multiplication. Because they're telling people that are telling people that are telling people that are telling people. And we can see a revolution in this city for the name of Jesus Christ. I believe that can happen. But it's got to start with us. It's got to start with us. What else would we do as the kingdom of God? What else would we do? Will we go back? Look at verse 9 one more time. They said to each other, what we're doing is not right. Man, I hope this sticks on your spirit. I love Paul in Romans 9. I don't want to misquote it. I have it memorized, but I don't want to misquote it. I don't have this. It was in my notes, but it's just it's so good. Paul in Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So basically he said the same thing three times in a row. He says, listen, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms. <laughs> I love it. Listen, what I'm going to say sounds like a lie, but I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. And my conscience confirms it. And then he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Mm. 
(laughs) That's never stopping, never giving up anguish. That's like, I can't sleep at night. I have anguish. I have this unceasing anguish. And what is the anguish for? It's in my heart. He says, for I can wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. That's Paul's words. He goes, listen, I know it's going to sound like a lie, but I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth. My conscience confirms this. I have unceasing anguish. What do I have anguish for? It's that I would be cut off from Christ, that I would not get abundant life on earth, that I would not get eternal life in heaven, that I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the people of my own race. If they would come to know Jesus, I would give my own faith in Jesus. I want them to know Jesus so badly. Have you ever had unceasing anguish about one lost person? Ever? Where you just can't sleep and it just stirs at you and you're just like, I, I, I can't even go home tonight. I've got to tell them about Jesus. I can't even wait till tomorrow. I've got to tell them tonight. It's an unceasing, never stopping anguish. What we're doing is not right. I hope that just lands on your spirit and you just go, I, I've got to do something with this good news. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. So here's the question. We're done. Here's the question. What would it look like if you were to embrace this simple truth that with the great discovery of Jesus Christ comes great responsibility. Amen. What will you do with the good news? I'm going to ask Randy to join me, but if you have a notes, if you're a note taker, I'm going to give you seven questions. We're going to close with seven quick questions that I'd love for you to think about. Okay, this is your application. This is where you go and you say, okay, we're going to move with this way. Number one, Seven questions to consider. Who would you make time to invite out to lunch? If you took this responsibility, as great as it is, who would you make time to invite out to lunch? It's very easy. Listen, I'm with you. It is so easy to go to lunch with my Christian friends because we think alike. (laughs) We like some of the same thing. I mean, it's just easy. It's hard. My wife and I, oh my goodness, we can tell you some stories of just some fun people. That we, <laughs> I'll tell you some other time. But just some fun people. I'll tell you one. We had, we had, a, we had a couple uh, that came over, and she, she made the mistake of telling them that I was a pastor. And so they came over, and they were high, they were high as a kite. And, uh, and so we started talking to them. And, and I, you know, I wasn't forcing anything down their throats. I wasn't going, hey, you need Jesus. I was just telling my story. Here's the thing. Sometimes evangelism scares you. And I get that. Because we're scared of what? Rejection. I heard it multiple times. Rejection. We're scared of rejection. The truth is that Jesus said, this is, this is great. Okay, so what, let, me just say, let me back up and say this. When we share our faith, there are three options that can happen. They can accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's a good thing, right? We can plant a seed. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, all right? So there's one bad option, they reject you. So 33% of the time something bad happens, but that keeps us from doing it altogether. But then Jesus comes onto the scene in Luke 6, 22 and 23, and he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. So Jesus has just taken away the one excuse that we have. He says, when you're rejected for me, you can click your heels together and say, great is your reward in heaven. Yeah, I'm going to do that again on this side. Come on. I nearly fell. (laughs) 
He says, you're blessed. I get it, it's tough. And I get it, you have people that you're doing life with. I was talking to a, to a young man at Continuum on Sunday night, and he says, this guy, he knows the Bible better than me. But here's the thing that nobody can argue. Nobody can argue your story. Nobody can. He said, listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the Bible verses. I, don't, I just know that it's working for me. Jesus has radically transformed my life. I am a witness to that. I have experienced something in my own life. God is doing something in my world. He's rocking it. And I think he could rock your world too. And I wish you would just come and sit with me. Nobody can argue that. Nobody can fight that. They can't go, nuh-uh. They can't. It's your story. I can argue scripture until I'm blue in the face with an atheist, but they can't refute my story. So share your story. Invite them to lunch. Who would you make? I, I, I have made it, a, this, this could be a goal for you. I have made it a goal that every single week I want to go to lunch with at least one person who does not know Jesus Christ. Every week, just one person, at least one person. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make a concerted effort to invite them out to lunch. And maybe sometimes, sometimes I'll be honest, sometimes it, it happens and immediately we start talking about Jesus. And sometimes it's a little bit slower. Sometimes it takes some time. You don't want to like, what do you want to eat? Pizza. Do you know Jesus? Like sometimes that's, I get it. <laughs> that may not work. You know what question I love to ask? You can try this one too. You can write this one down. Is I'll say, do you ever think about spiritual things? When we talk about politics, and we talk about health, and we talk about world news and world events, we talk about sports, the game on Sunday, why don't we talk about spiritual things? So I'll just say, you ever think about spiritual things? I've never one time had somebody say, no. Never. And if they do, I just go, how about them cubs, huh? Like I just switch the subject. But it's never happened. I'll say, do you ever think about spiritual things? Now, you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. One time I got, oh, I do. I think about the stars and the celestial beings. And I'm like, okay, we're going to go there. Okay, you know. And they talk about it. I said, well, let me tell you kind of where I've landed. It's just, an, it's just a smooth transition. Who would you take to lunch? Number two. What would your next gift be? And who would you send it to? If you take this great responsibility seriously, what would your next gift be? And who would you send it to? Number three, would you do anything different financially? If you take the good news of Jesus Christ seriously, that's what the gospel means. Gospel translates as good news. If you took that seriously, would you do anything different financially? Number four, who would you have over for dinner? My wife and I had friends over for dinner last night. And we're discipling and loving who would you have over for dinner? Keeps your house clean. <laughs> I got a thumbs up. <laughs> and she says, let's bring some over to the house because she wants me to clean it. That's what she <laughs> Number five. Who do you need to invite to church? Remember Brad last week said, just come sit with me. Listen, this is a great place. It is. And it's called Christian Life Church. And there is life here. And it's, it's really hard to come into this place and not look around and go, man, these people have something I don't have. And it's intriguing. I want to know more. Who would you invite to church? Number, number six. Would you change where you work out or where your kids play ball? What I mean by that question, would you change maybe some of your routines? Something that we started doing 
is with our neighbors, right? I mean, sometimes, like, some of you have lived in the same neighborhood for years, and you've never met your neighbor. And that's kind of awkward now to go over and go, hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> that's weird. So, uh, I, we, just, we, we would wait until they would go to their mailbox. And then we would, we would just, and that's kind of stalky, I know, but that's okay. And I would wait till they go to their mailbox. I just kind of look out the window, and then when I saw them, I would go, or when they're putting their trash out, and I would go out, and I would say, hey, and I'm sorry, I, I feel like a total jerk. We've lived here for so many months, and I, I've never officially introduced myself. It just takes that one small apology, and they're going to go, oh, yeah, it's nice to meet you. Did you know that Acts 17 says that God has ordained the times and the places that men should live? God puts you in your spot, in your neighborhood, in your apartment, in your home, at this time, for that purpose. So would you change some of your routines? Would you go, you know, I work out with all my friends who are Christians. Maybe I'll go to a different gym. You know, everybody on our team I know, I'm going to invest in a different little league this year. Number seven, last one. Who would you begin to pray for tenaciously? Until a change came about. If you said, God, I'm going to get on my hands and my knees and I'm going to pray 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 and I'm going to pray. I had a buddy um, named Cody. This is a, an older story, but it's one of my favorite stories. Cody was my boss. And uh, he did He didn't know Jesus. He was far from God. He, uh, he's, whatever, he smoked a lot, like a train, every day, just, he was always, he was just nervous, I guess, I don't know. And he drank heavily, and uh, my wife and I, we were high school sweethearts, and, and I started dating her, and he invited us to watch the Evander Holyfield-Mike Tyson fight where he bit off his ear. And um, I told JC, I said, and she was pretty young, and I said, we should probably go. Like, we should go because he invited me, and I'm trying to love on him and invest and evangelize to him. And so we went, and I don't really know what drugs were there, but it was crazy. And I just felt, I'm like, we're going to get arrested. And I'm just like, we're just sitting on the couch, just like, just hurry up and finish the fight. And um, it was just awkward. And I would do little things. Like I would say, hey, I want you to listen to this song. And I'd play Mercy Me. I can only imagine that's when it came out. <laughs> what do you think? It's cool. I just kept loving on him. I didn't shove anything down his throat. And if you ask him, he says, we never did that. He just always preached Christ. And every time he got a chance, he'd share the gospel. It usually take, the average is 7.3 times for someone to hear the gospel before they receive and accept it. And you might be number one. And you plant that seed, absolutely, Ray. Or you could be 7.3. And they say, yeah, I need that. So I'll tell the same person the same gospel, the same t- I'll keep saying it until they get it. So Cody never got it. His wife never got it. So I come to UT, went to the University of Texas. And uh, I kept in touch with Cody, but not really. I mean, I'd call him every once in a while. But it had been months and months and months and months and months. Little did I know that his grandmother passes away. And he was at the low point of his life. And he got really, really trashed that night. And in a moment of desperation, he, he looks up to God and he says, God, if you're real. He was an atheist. If you're real, 
I want you to have Reed Johnson or Ronnie Wooldridge call me. Because he says, they're the only two people that I knew that loved God. (laughs) The same day that he said that prayer, I can't say the Holy Spirit of God said, call Cody. I just called him. I hadn't talked to him in months. I just called him. And he didn't pick up. His wife picked up and she says, well, he's out of town, but I'll have him call you when he gets home. But it might be late. He may call you tomorrow. I said, it's fine. It's fine. So he's on his way back from, he, he was managing a band at the time. And so he was on his way back from the gig and he says, hey, I'm going to be home about one o'clock. And she said, okay, we'll be careful. She said, oh, by the way, Reed Johnson called you. No, that wasn't good enough for him. He goes, no, that's coincidence. Hung up the phone. The next morning, it's 10 in the morning. His, his words, he said, I was outside smoking a cigarette, and Ronnie Wooldridge lights up his phone. And listen to this. When he answers the phone, Ronnie says, you've been waiting for me to call, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Now, Ronnie's story, he was just joshing with him. He just make, he just being stupid. You know, and he's like, hey, you want me to call? And it made Cody, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> He is freaking out. Long story short, he calls me back. He tells me this story. I said, Cody, you know how long I've been praying for you. You know how long I want you to come into relation with Jesus Christ. I I want you so bad to know him as Lord and Savior. And there was an adult kind of a Christian event that was coming up. And I said, I want you to go. to the. I will pay your way. I will pay your admission. I just want you to go. So he went and accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior. That day, that day, he gave up alcohol, cold turkey. He gave up drugs, cold turkey. He gave up cigarettes, cold turkey. He went home. He led his wife to Jesus Christ. Some of you know them because they were part of this church in the early 2000s. And now they're in Chinook, Kansas, doing a ministry together for the kingdom of God and letting more people experience this good news. With our great discovery comes great responsibility. I'm like you. If I'm not careful, I can delight in what God's doing for me and forget to go back and share those who don't know. Let's stand together all over this house. As we close tonight, maybe there is a person that God is placing upon your heart that needs the news. And I'm going to pray for you. Paul, in Ephesians 6, he prays for boldness. And I think about Paul, he's like the most bold guy in the Bible. But he tells the church at Ephesus, he says, I want you to pray for me for boldness and for courage. And every single night, parents do this, every single night I pray with my kids, and every single night I say, God, I want you to give Zach and I want you to give Jack boldness and courage in sharing their faith with their friends who don't know you. Because the world puts fear into you, but God did not give you a spirit of fear. So I want to pray for you. Is that okay? Can I just pray for you that God will give you a boldness and a courage and what you... Listen, James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the words and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There is a deception that happens when we come to church and we go, oh, that was good. I do. I need to go share the good news. And we get in our car and go, what do you want to eat for dinner? And we just kind of go on about our business. James, the brother of Jesus, says, do what it says. Even Jesus said something similar in Matthew 7. 
He says, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. He said, that person is the one who puts these words into practice. We've heard the words of Christ tonight. We've got to share the good news. We've got to go and make disciples. We've got to be his witnesses. We've got to fish for people. So I'm going to pray for the boldness and courage for us to follow through. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for everybody that's in this house tonight. God, I just think about just overnight, overnight your kingdom in this specific bride of Christ, this expression of your bride of Christian life, Austin, overnight it can And that concludes today's message. Please visit clcaustin.com for the latest news, to register for an upcoming event, or to support the Christian Life Ministry through our online giving portal. Thank you for listening.